You know, I'm a 90s kid through and through. I grew up on Rugrats. I grew up on Tamagotchi and Beanie Babies. And during the 90s, there was these books that were very popular. You might know it. It's called Magic Eye. Now, Magic Eye books were filled with 2D images of seemingly random shapes and colors. But if you looked at each image the right way, the 2D images would transform into three-dimensional images. I'm going to throw some up just to see if you can do it. Here's the first one. I'll give you guys a few seconds. Anyone? The first image is a donut, okay? And so you'll see a 3D donut if you look at it closely. Let's throw up one more. Can anyone make out what this image is? If you said 99, you are correct. And so Magic Eye requires a different way of approaching, of looking at the image so that you can access the three-dimensional aspect of it. And I think for many of us, the Bible is like this, a bunch of abstract shapes and colors that don't seem to make much sense to us. But if you learn to look at the Bible just right, if you have the eyes to see it for what it really is, all of a sudden, these ordinary pictures come alive in a new way. What we're looking for in reading the Bible is the ability to turn these two-dimensional words on paper into a three-dimensional encounter with God so that the text takes on life and meaning and depth and perspective and gives us life for today. And I think for most of us, the Old Testament is like a magic eye image we can't seem to crack. Like what's with all the bloodshed and the weird sacrifice rituals and the hundreds of laws and all of these strange stories? I mean, I love Psalms, but Leviticus? What's more, why does God in the Old Testament seem so different than God in the New Testament? I mean, in the New Testament, God is so loving, so kind, so forgiving. But in the Old Testament, why is God so angry, so jealous, so violent? And I think most of us, unable to reconcile these difficult questions, gloss over the Old Testament and spend most of our time in the New Testament. Maybe, maybe Psalms and Proverbs get a pass, but the rest of the Old Testament is just too hard. And so we spend most of our time with Jesus in the Gospels and in the New Testament, Paul's letters. You know, recently I, I read a tragic article sharing some very tragic news that Taco Bell is taking the Mexican pizza off of their menu. And for me, I'm thinking, I cannot, if I go to Taco Bell and I look at a menu and the Mexican pizza is not on there, it's not a Taco Bell menu. It's not complete without the Mexican pizza. By the way, we have till November, so all my Taco Bell fans, we got to go get our Mexican pizzas. But in the same way, the story of the Bible is not complete without the Old Testament, just the same way that a Taco Bell menu is not complete without the Mexican pizza, the story of the Bible is not complete without the Old Testament. So then the question is this, how then do we approach the Old Testament? How do we make sense of it all? What do we obey and what's okay not to obey? You know, a while back, there was an open letter written to Dr. Laura. If you don't know who Dr. Laura is, she's a Jewish author who offers, you know, practical advice about relationships, about parenting, about ethics, all based on Old Testament principles. And this open letter from an anonymous person was written to Dr. Laura in a very um, 
sarcastic tone. I'm going to read it for us because I think it applies to what many of us feel about the Old Testament. This is what she writes. Dear Dr. Laura, thank you for doing so much to educate people regarding God's law. I have learned a great deal from your show, and I try to share that knowledge with as many people as I can. I do need some advice from you, however, regarding some of the specific laws and how to follow them. I would like to sell my daughter into slavery, as sanctioned in Exodus 21.7. In this day and age, what do you think would be a fair price for her? I have a neighbor who insists on working on the Sabbath. Exodus 35.2 clearly states that he should be put to death. Am I morally obligated to kill him myself? A friend of mine feels that even though eating shellfish is an abomination according to Leviticus 11.10, it is a lesser abomination than homosexuality. I don't agree. Can you settle this? Leviticus 21.20 states that I may not approach the altar of God if I have a defect in my sight. I have to admit that I wear reading glasses. Does my vision have to be 20-20 or is there some wiggle room here? I know that Leviticus 11.6-8 that touching the skin of a dead pig makes me unclean, but may I still play football if I wear gloves? I know you have studied these things extensively, so I'm confident you can help. Thank you again for reminding us that God's word is eternal and unchanging. Wow. And so obviously written with a very sarcastic tone, but I think many of us would have very similar questions. We read all of these laws and commands in the Old Testament Are we supposed to obey them or do we just pick and choose? Like, how do we approach the Old Testament? And I think the first thing we have to understand is that the Old Testament is full of wisdom, but not all of it is timeless wisdom. If you remember our definition of the Bible, the Bible is a library of writings that are both divine and human that together tell a unified story, which leads us to Jesus. We have to remember the Bible is a story, not a rule book. There was a book on the best-selling books list a while back called The Year of Living Biblically, One Man's Humble Quest to Follow the Bible as Literally as Possible by a Jewish author by the name of A.J. Jacobs. And he says this, quote-unquote, I'm Jewish in the same way Olive Garden is an Italian restaurant, which is to say, not very. First of all, Olive Garden is underrated and delicious. But second of all, this this author, A.J., A.J. Jacobs was trying to recapture his Jewish roots. And so he undertook this experiment, this task, where he was going to go through the entire Old Testament and he would write down every rule, every law, every command. And for one year, he would literally and practically try to live in accordance to the rules that he came across. And in his studies, after going through the Old Testament, he actually wrote up 72 pages with more than 700 rules. And this book that he wrote was his attempt in trying to live out the Bible literally, following all of these Old Testament laws for one year. Uh, Some of them were strange, but he found he was able to do it. Things like bathe after sex or don't eat fruit from a tree planted less than five years ago. But then he would also come across rules that were just, um, he was unable to do it. Like one is kill magicians, um, which I think is horrible because magicians are wonderful. And so he found that it was impossible to live out the laws in our current day and age. 
See, the Bible is a story. Therefore, there are rules or commands that may be right and fitting for one part of the story, but not for another part. In other words, the laws God gave ancient Israel were laws for ancient Israel and not necessarily laws for us. And so God rescues his people out of slavery and says, this is the people I want you to be. In this time period, you people, in this culture, in this context, this is who I want you to be. And when we try to live out laws designed for a completely different people in a completely different time, in a completely different context, we start looking like a 60-year-old in skinny jeans, right? Or we start looking like this. The problem is there are so many believers who have an oversimplified approach to the Bible. Just do what it says. Just obey it. But I find that most people who have a just do what it says attitude are actually just cherry picking which parts of the Bible they actually choose to obey. For example, why does just do what it says apply to not having premarital sex? but it doesn't apply to wearing head coverings in the church. Why does just do what it says apply to tithing, but not to selling all your possessions and giving it to the poor? Why? Because there is context that we are called to explore, that these rules and commands were right and fitting for one part of the story, for one group of people in one specific time, but not necessarily our part. Scott McKnight is amazing book called Blue Parakeet, He says this, what we most need is not a return to the first or fourth or 16th or 18th century, but a fresh blowing of God's spirit on our culture, in our day, and in our ways. We need 21st century Christians living out the biblical gospel in 21st century ways. Even more, if we read the Bible properly, we will see that God never asked one generation to to step back in time and live the way it had done before. No, God spoke in each generation in that generation's ways. The biblical authors and the early church fathers went back to the Bible so that they could come forward into the present and see how the gospel translates in their day and age. We need to go back without getting stuck. In other words, we need believers to live out 21st century faith. We don't need you to be living like ancient Israelites. We don't need you to be living like the old or, or the early church. We need to live out 21st century faith. How do we regulate social media consumption? How do we do missions without tainting it with the Western colonial approach? How do we develop biblical ethics when the world is so progressively changing? That's not to say that all the commands from the Old Testament should be thrown away. I mean, you probably shouldn't murder. You probably shouldn't cheat on your spouse. You probably shouldn't bathe the goat in its mother's milk, right? But this fundamentally changes the way we approach the Old Testament, not as a rule book to follow, but as a story to get immersed in. And so instead of following these laws and commands literally that were given for a specific people in a specific time, we should be interested in getting familiar with the one who gave these commands, who these stories are all about. 
The first question I should ask when reading the Old Testament isn't, what should I do? It should be, what is God like? And the thing we have to understand is God didn't just give Israel these laws because he's a control freak. God was showing Israel the kind of people he called them to be. And I think sometimes we look at the book, at books like Leviticus and think some of these laws seem so archaic and strange. But if you really look at the laws of Leviticus, you'll see things like God was teaching his people to be generous to the poor. God was teaching his people fair treatment of employees, practical compassion for the disabled, respect for the elderly, integrity of the judicial process, safety precautions to prevent endangering life. He was teaching them ecological sensitivity, quality of life for ethnic minorities, honesty in trade and business. And in our day and age, we might call these things human rights. But God gave Israel all of these laws so they could look more And more like Yahweh, to be holy or set apart from other nations. So God didn't give all of these laws to Israel just because he's a control freak and he needs to be obeyed. He gave it to them so that they could become the people that they were always meant to be. The holy and set apart nation of Yahweh. If we go to Matthew chapter 22... We find this moment where Jesus is being confronted by Sadducees and Pharisees, and they're all trying to stump him with questions about Scripture. And so we see in verse 34, it says, Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law. By the way, if you ever come across an expert in anything in the Bible, they're about to get owned. An expert in the law tested him with this question, Teacher, Which is the greatest commandment in the law? And thinking he's going to stump them, Jesus actually replies, says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And this is the second, just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. In other words, every law that God gave Israel, as weird or as bizarre that they might seem, was to set them up to love God and to love others better. Every command that God gives us is given to accomplish these two things. And I think this is a good litmus test to understanding what we should obey. Does it help me love God better? And does it help me love others better? And so we see that all of these laws that God was giving his people was to move them forward to become more like him, to become more like Yahweh, to become the people that they were always meant to be so that they could love God better and they could love their fellow human beings better. At this point, though, you might say, wait a minute. Love your neighbor? What about in the Old Testament? What about slavery or treatment of women? Or what about genocide? How do we make sense of a God who allows all that to happen? How is that helping people love God better or love others better? 
I want us to look at a very challenging passage um, because we must if we're going to study the Old Testament. I want us to look at Deuteronomy chapter 21, okay? And we're going to read this together, and it's going to be very challenging. And I think reading the Old Testament should disrupt us. It should challenge us because it is a challenging text to understand. And so looking at this, Deuteronomy 21 verse 10. When you go to war against your enemies and the Lord your God delivers them into your hands and you take captives, if you notice among the captives a beautiful woman and are attracted to her, you may take her as your wife. Bring her into your home and have her shave her head, trim her nails, and put aside the clothes she was wearing when captured. After she has lived in your house and mourned her father and mother for a full month, then you may go to her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. If you are not pleased with her, let her go wherever she wishes. She must not sell her, you must not sell her or treat her as a slave since you have dishonored her. Now, no one reads this and thinks, wow, the Bible is awesome. It's amazing. No one's saying, I'm going to get this tattooed on my left bicep. This is my memory verse for the week. Most of us read this and say, it's very problematic. Like, there's something seriously wrong. This is not, this is what makes the Bible so challenging. But here's the thing. This is the problem. We read this and we compare it to our context, to our day and age. In other words, we're looking at this and saying, this would never fly in our day and age. There's so many red flags about it. You know? But when we approach the Old Testament, not as a rule book, but as a story, we begin to enter into their world. And this is what we find. If we look at this passage through the lens of their worldview, their time, their culture, their context, instead of comparing it to ours, this is what we find. Their world was barbaric. In that time, the victors of a war were allowed to do anything that they wanted with anyone that they beat in battle. Anything was fair game. Anyone you beat, they no longer they ceased to have any rights. You can do anything that you want. But notice how God restricts the rights of the victorious soldier. God says you cannot rape those people. God says you cannot just take women for temporary sexual pleasure. And at this time, this was absolutely revolutionary. Once again, if we look at it through our context, our lens, like, of course. But if we look back then in their context, in their story, this was absolutely revolutionary. Further, he says, if you do want a woman, if you see a woman that's attractive, and she's beautiful, and you want to take her as your wife, you have to take full responsibility for her. Make her your wife with all the legal and the social benefits. But he says, you can't do that immediately. You have to give her time to mourn and adjust to our suffering. And even at the end, it says, but... The last line, it's a criticism of the whole practice. He says, you must not sell her or treat her as a slave since you have dishonored her. And so God is putting limits on what they can do. That's very countercultural to the time. But he's saying, this is still not the ideal. This is not what I want. You have still dishonored her. You have brought dishonor to her, to yourself. This is not it. This is not the ideal. 
And we have to see that the laws we read about that confuse us in the Old Testament are both accommodating for that culture and future-looking for that culture. In other words, God was trying to pull Israel forward as a society toward his ideal, but he couldn't do that in a single sweep. And so he met them where they were at. And he set these restrictions. Maybe it looks like a tiny baby step in our context, in our day and age. But you have to understand, in their time, in their context, in their story, this was countercultural. It was huge. You know, right now I'm watching this show on HBO called Lovecraft Country, which is a phenomenal show. And in the first episode, um, this is set back when racism, especially um, in, in America, was very prevalent. And it still is today, but back then, they're, they're, in the first episode, they, they show what it was like in what they call sundown towns. Basically, there were these towns where if you were black, if you were in that town out past sundown in the dark, anyone in that town had a legal right to murder you, and especially the police. And so I'm watching the show, and I'm watching the brutal horrors of racism back in the day. And I'm watching this and thinking, man, these people are so racist. How could they think like that? How could they act like that? How could they do that? How could they justify it? And I, I think that if I were transported to that time, and if we were trying to pull a majority of racist America forward into the future, we realize, man, it couldn't happen overnight. And we even see it in our day and age. We're still so far from seeing racism eradicated in our country. Can you imagine going back to a time like that where sundown towns existed and pulling a racist America forward into the future? It's not going to happen overnight. And in the same way, God stepped into the story of Israel, into this barbaric world, and he was trying to inch Israel forward toward the ideal without leaving them behind. And so the Old Testament is a story that reveals a God who is trying to move humanity forward toward the ideal, back to Eden, where people can love God and love others. But we have to understand that he was stepping into their story. And at that time, it was very countercultural. And so we see that even in our day and age, God is moving us forward toward that ideal. He's moving us forward. Isn't it amazing just even to think in the last hundred years how much even women's rights have changed, how much progress we've made in so many areas of society. But we have to understand that God steps into our context and he tries to move us forward while still accommodating to our time so that he doesn't lose us. And so this is what the Old Testament is about. It's, it's, it's about God stepping into humanity's story and choosing a people and trying to move them, make them a light, a shining light of what humanity is supposed to be like. And he's moving them forward. Even though it seems like it's so slow, he's moving them forward toward that ideal. And this story, we find, reaches its crescendo in Jesus If we go to Luke chapter 24, and this is how we're going to wrap all this up. We're going to close soon. This is after Jesus was arrested and crucified, after he died and was buried. 
we see two people on the road to Emmaus who are talking about what's going on. And Jesus, after having coming back from the dead, he steps on the road with them and begins a conversation with them. But the two don't recognize Jesus. They don't know who he is. And so Jesus is asking, what's been going on? And the two people are like, "Uh, have you been living under a rock? Like the Messiah was alive. He was here. He was doing miracles, doing all these amazing things, talking about the coming kingdom, about our revolution, about our freedom. And then he gets arrested and he dies. And then he told everyone that he's going to come back three days later, but he's, he's still dead. He's gone. And he, they're, they're talking about what's going on, and Jesus looks at them. And this is where it picks up in verse 25. He said to them, how foolish are you? And how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And here's the key verse. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Later we find in verse 30, when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were open and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us. What caused their hearts to burn? I mean, it was the same scriptures that they had known their entire lives, the same stories, the same laws, the same poems, but their eyes began opening. The two-dimensional began transforming into a three-dimensional encounter with God. They began to see that every verse, every poem, every command, every story was all about Jesus. One of my favorite stories, um, movies, is Fight Club. And Fight Club is a very interesting movie. It's unconventional in that it starts with the end scene. And it opens with the narrator and Tyler, played by Brad Pitt. And Tyler has a gun in the narrator's mouth. And you're wondering, how did all this happen? And so the narrator is telling the story. The rest of the movie, after starting from the end, is told to um, help us catch up to how they got to that moment. What happened? And at the end of the movie, spoiler alert, you realize that Tyler is actually the narrator, that it's not two people, that they're one. And it's this big plot twist. It's this big aha moment. But the cool thing is, after you've known the ending, when you go through the movie again, you begin looking at the scenes differently. You begin seeing different scenes, and uh, while it might have looked a certain way the first time that you saw it, the second time that you're watching, you're realizing, oh my God, he's talking to himself. There is no Tyler. He's Tyler. And you're watching all these scenes, and you see the movie completely differently. And this is what Jesus did. He's walking with these disciples, and he's, he's going over the scriptures, the stories, the Old Testament that they had known their entire lives. But all of a sudden, he's showing them, but this is the ending, and now you're going to see it differently. And so the disciples began to see Jesus now in every scene, in every story, in every passage of the Old Testament. And now they were able to see the scriptures through a different lens. Now they were able to see when the psalmist wrote that, they were talking about Jesus. Wow, when God led Israel out of Egypt, it was a prophetic foretelling of our exodus out of slavery to sin. All of a sudden, this ancient text came to life in a new way. 
In Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In other words, Jesus came as the completion of the story which the Old Testament had told and as the fulfillment of the promise which the Old Testament had declared. And here's the beautiful thing. Just like knowing the New Testament, Jesus helps us understand the Old Testament better. Knowing the Old Testament also helps us understand the New Testament better. It helps us understand Jesus better. In other words, we need to be familiar with the Old Testament in order to fully understand much of the New Testament, particularly appreciating the person and the work of Jesus. Old Testament scholar John Golden Gay says that the New Testament is nothing but footnotes on the Old Testament. And he adds that one can't produce a theology out of footnotes. That is, if you don't have the Old Testament in your head, you can't fully grasp what the New Testament authors are saying. In other words, you can't have a Taco Bell menu without Mexican pizza. You need the Old Testament But once you start looking at the Old Testament with Jesus, with the end in mind, all of a sudden you see all of it weaved together. And it's like that magic eye book. You see a beautiful image of a divine God. I I don't remember where I got this from, but um, in a book I was reading, the author was saying, think of an Israelite. And and imagine that they're on their way to the promised land after passing through the Red Sea. You know the story. They got delivered from Egypt. They passed through the Red Sea, and they're on their way to the promised land. Now, if you asked an Israelite in that context, who are you? He might reply, I was in a foreign land under the sentence of death and in bondage, but I took shelter under the blood of the Lamb. And our mediator led us out and we crossed over and now we're on our way to the promised land, though we're not there yet. But he has given us his law to make us a community. And he's given us a tabernacle because we must live by grace and forgiveness. And he is present in our midst and he'll stay with us until we arrive home. Looking at this context Doesn't that sound just like our lives? That we're the ones living under the protection of the blood of the Lamb. That we're the ones Jesus rescued out of slavery. That we're the ones that crossed over from death to life. That we're the ones that Jesus is leading home. That we're the ones in a world that is not ours. That we're waiting for the new Jerusalem, for the new heaven. But in the midst, God has given us his law. He's given us his spirit so that we could be a community until we get home. If we look at the context of the Israelites in the Old Testament, we see that it's us. That we, in our modern day and age, in our context, are living out that same story. In other words, the Old Testament helps us understand Jesus in our day and age so much better once we look at it like the story it is and not the rule book that it is. I think in our time, we're so trained to look at each part of the Bible 
in isolation. And we pull verses out of context for our Instagram feeds instead of looking at the entire story in its entirety. You know, one-chapter Bible readers develop one-chapter Christian lives. And I believe God has called us to so much more. And so this week, our, our practical application, our challenge for you is to study the Old Testament. Now, I'm not asking you to do an extensive study of the entire Old Testament, but we want you to study a specific part of the Old Testament that's always confused you or something that intrigues you or something that you just want to learn more about. Richard Foster, he wrote this amazing book called The Celebration of Discipline. He, He says, study is a specific kind of experience in which through careful attention to reality, the mind is enabled to move in a certain direction. And so studying is paying careful attention to the reality of the text. What is the context? What were these people going through? How can I step into the story and see their mo- that moment, see that time through their eyes? It's stepping into their context. You know, for me, it's shocking how many people have formed their theology about things like sexuality, about women in leadership, about abortion, without ever having studied what the Bible has to say about it for themselves? And I'm not talking about just what your pastor told you, what your parents told you, but what you actually studied in the Bible for yourself. And so that's what we're going to do this week. We're going to study the Old Testament. I want you to choose a story. I want you to choose a book or a chapter or a topic. I want you to choose something about the Old Testament that confuses you or intrigues you. And I want us to study it. There are a few methods that we can approach in studying the Old Testament. Number one is looking up commentaries. And by the way, we are so blessed. We have access to high-quality insight about these Old Testament texts. Anyone can access it in our day and age. And so you can look up commentaries. You can research sermons or books. We even recommend study Bibles. You know, the ESV study Bible is a really solid place to start. Wherever you want to go, I want us to study the Bible this week. I want us to step into the story of the Old Testament. I want us to understand so that we can have a fuller understanding of Jesus and what our lives as believers should look like today. I want to close just by showing you a brief glimpse of how everything in the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. And Jesus is truly the fulfillment of all the scriptures. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is assigned to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel, who, though innocently slain, has blood now that cries out for our freedom and not our condemnation. Jesus is the true and better Abraham, who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void to create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who was not just offered up by his father, but was truly sacrificed for us. And while God said to Abraham, now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love from me. Now we can say to God, now we know that you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love from me. 
Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserved. Jesus is the true and better Joseph who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate and heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. These are just a few examples of how everything in the Old Testament is actually telling the story of Jesus. And let's be a people who would immerse ourselves in the full story of the Bible, who learn to turn these two-dimensional words into a three-dimensional encounter with God, who play our part in the story well by knowing what's come before, but understanding what it's all led toward. I believe that God wants to give us a fresh perspective, a fresh heart, a fresh approach to the Old Testament, not as a rule book to follow, but as a story to immerse ourselves in, to know who God is, what he is like, and how he is redeeming all of humanity through Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you that all of your scripture is God-breathed. Even the parts that we don't understand, even the parts that might rub us the wrong way, even the parts that are hard to grasp, I thank you all of your scripture is God breathed. And so God, would we learn to access not the dead words of dead authors, but the living word that is alive through your spirit And I pray specifically for 99 that we would not be a people who gloss over the Old Testament because it's hard, but that we would sit in and we would lean in and that we would look deeper. We would immerse ourselves in the story of your people and see traces of your living son through it all. We love you. Would you help us? Would you give us grace? as we study your word this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.